I'm going to begin with one more prayer. And then I'm going to do something that I have to say because my colleague, Dr. Stacy Minger, will put her hands on her hips and wonder what I'm about to do. <laughs> but I'm going to begin this talk not as a sermon, but as a setup for some of the things that this weekend is about or that this day is about. So I'm going to ask you to allow me a personal moment before I begin to speak into the word. All right. Where did, where did Dr. Minger go? That should clear me up. Yeah, okay. So I'm good now, okay? Don't be, don't be fussing at me. <laughs> and, and you can tell the students, don't ever do that again. <laughs> Pray with me. Status updates announcing transitions. Twitter posts of random opinions. Pain and sorrow amplified in community protest. Are these signs that we are alive? Pinterest boards gathering our plans, hopes, and likes, photos of celebration on Instagram. Or are they but the death gurgles masquerading as signs of life? We find it hard to admit, to confess, that we are alive and claim our life through your son's good death into which we are baptized. You have made us your baptized, giving us life, a life that makes our pain and sorrow and happiness real, a life that makes our crying, wailing, and laughing service to one another. So raise us from our watery graves, shouting, Jesus Christ is Lord, so that the world may know your life, your love. Amen. It's a period of post-theistic political tribalism, disenchanted humanism arising from a secular worldview has penetrated the academy and the church. And during the shifting worldviews, there arose a generation whose imagination had not yet been shaped by the canonical narrative, challenged to tell ancient stories in a soundbite, media-saturated environment. Seminarians and the community at Asbury Theological Seminary seek to recover the legends of the faith that can restore hope to the world. So it begins. But first, a little bit about me. I'm from Chicago. I grew up on Chicago's south side in a community called West Chatham, and we were a tight-knit community. I can still name most of the families in that community because all of the parents were our parents, my parents. We ate bologna, cold or fried, peanut butter and jelly, grilled cheese sandwiches, pork and beans, hot dogs, pots of bean, red beans and rice, black-eyed peas, collards, mustards, and turnips. We had home-cooked dinners every night. And we listened to WJPC or Herb Kent and the electric company 
uh, the electric part, we looked at the electric company too, but electric crazy people on WVON, which I recently learned actually stands for the voice of the Negro, which tells you how old that station is. Television was black and white and all stations went off at 12 a.m. until 5 a.m. or 6 a.m. in order for people to actually go to bed and go to sleep. And we ate penny candy. And it was called penny candy because that's what it cost. And I walked to and from school, rain or shine, and in the snow. You took your school clothes off as soon as you got home and you put on your play clothes. And when you went outside to play, you got dirty. We played freeze tag, red light, green light, hide and seek, red rover, truth or dare, softball, kickball, dodgeball, touch football, and roller skated and rode our bikes all over the neighborhood. The boys collected baseball cards and comic books and read them. They didn't put them in this plastic stuff. <laughs> and the girls could spend hours jumping rope, Chinese jump rope, or playing jacks and playing softball with the boys. We called it strikeout on the side of the school building, and they let me play until they found out that I thought the object of the game was actually to strike out. <laughs> we would literally line up and race for fun, and staying in the house was punishment. The only thing we knew about board were board games. There was no bottled water. We drank from the tap, the water hose, the fire hydrants. We watched cartoons on Saturday morning. We went to church on Sunday mornings. Our neighborhood was a city within the city. Someone had a fight. That's all it was. We were friends again the next day, if not sooner. The streetlights were our curfew. The schools were mandatory, and teachers and police were people you could trust. We watched our mouths around our elders because all of our neighbors were our parents, and you didn't want them telling your parents what you got seen or caught doing. We respected our elders. We all did. I loved growing up on Chicago's south side, and I hope that my memories, which prove that this gray hair comes honestly, helped you remember some things about your own childhood. Because we live out our faith from the moments we come from. So let me invite you to remember from a few images. Remember when everyone was talking about who was on the ropes. Remember the spray of water on your back. Remember when bars protected us. Remember when Christian leaders wore robes. Actually, I don't think my words created for you the memories that they created for me. Will you refocus your imagination with me and 
Let me say those words again. Remember when everyone was talking about who was on the ropes. Remember the spray of the water on your back. Remember when bars protected us. Remember when Christian leaders wore robes. I want to ask you a question as you ask me, now why did she go there? The question I want to ask you is what kind of people are we forming? I don't usually accept speaking engagements in February. Because if the reason that I'm invited in February is to do some type of tick list for African American uh, Black History Month, and you really, really want me, then I say no to February, because then you have to get a second person of color to fill your pulpit if you want me, because I'm not coming in February. I actually believe that the reason that I had the opportunity to teach at Asbury Seminary was because I broke that rule. It wasn't the seminary where I spoke, but it was across the street at the college because the dates just didn't work out. But I'm actually glad to be able to be here today. As you move into your discussion led by the Foundry, because it is a conversation I wanted to have 20 years ago. And it is exciting to see that that conversation is being hosted here at Asbury Seminary. For that, I'm grateful. I'm also grateful to be able to be back in Estes. But the reason that I wanted to ask you to refocus and to ask yourself what kind of people you're forming, because if leaders are unable to reflect on the viewpoints that we hold, how can we ask those over whom we have influence to reconsider their viewpoints? Sometimes we have to do first what it is we ask of others. We have to be the change we want to see. So today I draw your attention to this letter Letters are so last century. When one has access to instant global news, why bother framing content that can sustain a relationship for more than a single news cycle? The availability of constantly changing headlines make it difficult to sit down and read a missive that conveys lasting ideas, builds community, and makes promises that the contributor actually plans to keep. In comparison to today's 280-character soundbites, this is a humongous document. 
Those who preserved its content divided it into six chapters with 149 verses. It's no wonder, no wonder few people bother to read it in its entirety unless it's assigned as your New Testament book. The author of this letter is reported to be an old school patriarch whose steadfastness in the face of suffering qualifies him to both admonish and to advise. If he'd been invited to give a TED talk, he would not have backed away from the idea that the most worthy news of sharing is the news of Jesus Christ, crucified, buried, and raised. No compromise. No crowd-pleasing, vacuous speeches adjusted to attract the attention of politically motivated audiences. The authority of this letter is enhanced by the fact that it has been framed as the writer's address in the midst of controversy surrounding enthusiastic new converts and loyal legalists. Like Moses, pausing, passing on advice to Joshua and the neophyte religious community that arose in the wilderness, Paul is presented now as a wise apostle passing on precious guidance to the neophyte community in Galatia. We don't do this anymore. Write letters. Or we'll send a thank you card, a widely distributed accounts of household events during the past year, or denominational press releases. But few bother to pen a personal note to exhort and encourage a cherished community to hold to the gospel that has been passed down to us. And that's what Paul is doing here. He begins with a bold assessment that the community has abandoned the gospel. And he pauses to make clear the gospel, that the gospel is about God and the community that God is forming. So while he gives his own testimony, it's only so that Paul can make clear that the message is always and only about Jesus Christ. And the fulfillment of what Israel's scriptures have always described as the promise of God. A promise that has never, has never been about a nation in a particular zip code. But about how that people enable all people to see God as proclaimed by Jesus, a community that is leaven in the loaf. God is planting a seed with one nation to grow a community of every nation, tongue, and tribe. But have you noticed how the modifiers we use have become more important labels than the one that names us as persons who hold the faith of Jesus Christ? Evangelical, progressive, conservative, liberal, American, Western, Southern, liberation, feminist, queer, Republican, libertarian, independent, rich, poor, middle class. It's as if we've all yielded to the same temptation that got Adam and Eve to eat themselves out of house and home. You remember, the creator of the universe had given the humanity the birthmark made in the image of God, hashtag divine facsimile. And all they, we, have to do is to trust God enough to obey God. But when they were told that they could have the Geico more, they reached for knowledge, which I guess they needed since they didn't seem to understand that being a transcript of the Trinity was pretty godlike. 
And so wanting to make a name for themselves, they set in motion the name game of labeling and posturing, which is why I'm actually stalling on telling you what it is I want to say to you. Hashtag fear, I'll never get invited back to Asbury again. <laughs> okay. Here's what I need to tell you. I'm not white. I was actually shocked when I heard that. But I'm certain of it because a six-year-old told me. I'd gotten in the car with her after her aunt's wedding. We were going over to the uh, reception, and she informed her parents that she wanted me to drive her to the reception. I don't have any children of my own. I'm the perennial auntie. It's like being a grandmother without having to be a parent first. <laughs> so I was excited at the prospect of being alone in the car for a long ride with a six-year-old. Those of you who are parents of six-year-olds know that that was a bad idea. Those of you who don't take my advice, get braced for this. But as we were riding along and I was still in the white suit with the black markers on it that I had worn underneath my robe for the wedding. She began a conversation that began with, Pastor Joy, some people say that you're black. <laughs> this is so not the conversation I thought I was going to have in the car. Where is her mother? Who let me get in the car? Oh, my. What do you say? Uh, well, Jesse. Actually, I am black. And defiantly, she said, no, you are not. I am so in trouble. Oh, God, what am I going to do? She said, pointing to my white suit and the little black lines, that's black. You're brown. Oh, that's the conversation we're having. <laughs> and recognizing her wisdom, I thought I would clear up a conversation that I, I just needed an answer to. And so I looked at her and I said, Jesse, if I'm brown, what are you? And she said, pink. <laughs> so the truth is, I didn't want to tell you what you already knew. I wanted to tell you this. It's not that I'm not white. It's that you're not white. Now, some of you will breathe a sigh of relief that I'm not ever getting invited back to Esther's Chapel. Others of you will be furious. Some of you will scratch your head. But the truth is, it is a socially constructed idea designed 500 years ago to label people and has become the most important modifier of our identity, which is why you react as you do. Hashtag, can you spell idolatry? Somebody want to talk about what it might mean for the next generation of Christians? to understand that who we are and whose we are baptized in the name of Jesus is the only moniker that matters. 
And that until our seminaries, our congregations, our communities look like the every nation, every tongue, every tribe that God is forming that will call on the name of Jesus, we are not being the glimpse of the kingdom of God that we are called to be. We have to be first what it is we expect the world to be. And the world is not leading us on this issue. I wish that my denomination, the United Methodist Church, put as much energy in trying to be a multicultural, multi-ethnic community, removing the monikers of blackness and whiteness as it did to amending marriage. As we sit back putting forth all of our energies for a second time on dividing ourselves, let me draw your attention to the fact that the culture is very happy for us to have a conversation about who you're sleeping with. But the culture is not happy to have a genuine conversation about race. Which tells me that that's the countercultural move that is the church. Because like the first century Christians ignoring circumcision of the heart to fight over circumcision of the body, focusing on writing more laws than doing what the Lord requires. It's so much easier for us to talk about anything and everything about except for the place where God is needing to work in our hearts. I'm pastoring now an African-American church in Flint, Michigan, a historic church that has been around for almost 100 years. And in a district of 92, it is the only African-American church in 2019 in Michigan. That says something about how important the issue of the people of God worshiping together is to the church today. But I dare say that if we're thinking just like the culture, then somebody isn't thinking. But they didn't give me enough time to talk about what it would mean for this idea that we move together and be the community that God is forming. Because throughout scripture, the people of God have posed a question about what it is we are to do in the world when God has desired us to describe us as how we are to be in the world. So it's not just that we do acts of kindness, it's that we are kind. It's not that just that we practice justice, it's that we are just. So I ask us as we pause to consider who it is God is forming as a community, what kind of community are we forming? Because God has one mission and God is faithful to keep that mission, redeeming and restoring. God's mission is the redemption and restoration of humanity and creation. But I keep asking communities, does God's mission have a church? You see, God has never ceased from this project of creating a community where the spirit so evidently abides that the world takes notice that what we see now is not what we get later. God's intention for reality is better than this. We long for it, we hope for it, we pray for it, we wait for it. But the question is whether or not we're willing to live into it in the little spaces of influence that we have. In order to know the concerns of God, and maybe we have to learn again from our roots as followers of John Wesley, 
because the Wesleyan influence enabled us to recognize that political and social engagement for justice in one's context is, in fact, the way one proclaims Jesus saves. And if we ever recover that Wesleyan approach, our understanding of the church and salvation will again include social and political and individual and spiritual dimensions of the created reality. So our message must go before the politicians as well as the public. That's the only way that we will be like Joseph and Moses before Pharaoh and Peter, Stephen, and Paul before the religious and political leaders, not to mention Jesus himself, announcing the good news of God's reign regardless of who thinks they sit in the White House or on the throne. Like the daughters of Zelophehad before the Israelite community, the gospel compels the church universal to engage in social and political action. Like the songs of Miriam and Miriam, the good news results in both evangelism and mission. Because the gospel of Jesus Christ is the triune God's decisive word of liberation for the whole creation. And it is revealed in the life, ministry, death, burial, resurrection, ascension, and promised return of Jesus of Nazareth. And if God can raise Jesus from the dead, then tell me you believe that God can handle the misfortunes of our heart and the problems of our own idolatry of self. We must stop navel-gazing to make ourselves powerful or even right and begin to allow the redemption and reconciliation of God in our lives to allow us to be demonstrations of righteousness. So I ask again, does God's mission have a church? Because the central importance of Scripture is the description of the Creator God creating a community. The only time in all creation that God said this isn't good is when God created the human one alone. And since then, God has been forming a people, a community with whom God's spirit so evidently abides that the world takes notice that says, there's something peculiar about you. You're not like everybody else. In order to do that, we have to get up from where we're comfortable and follow Jesus. And maybe that is why Jesus is constantly saying, come. Because Jesus, too, was doing just what his father was doing. He was forming a community. So we shouldn't be surprised that God's first invitation to God's people in the garden was to go into all the world. And no, I didn't mistake Matthew's quote for a Genesis summation. Few of us are fluent in Hebrew, even here. But we all remember these words to the first couple, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. From the beginning, God is establishing the kingdom. And Jesus would teach his followers about that kingdom. And what is the blueprint for building the kingdom? It seems that what the Lord requires today is the same as it's always been, to do justice to facilitate generosity, and to live in such a way that the God made known in Jesus is recognized as king in every nation, every tribe, every culture, and every tongue. And Dr. Stone, you can talk to me about my Hebrew interpretation later. 
When Jesus proclaimed the gospel, he used ideas like the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus was proclaiming the inrushing rule of God, the same God who lit the furnace of the sun and molded the earth by hand, the God who told the crashing waves how far to come on the dry land and showed the stars where to hide until evening. This God promises Jesus come, was coming to establish dominion and authority in the world. And Jesus is describing the power of God's kingdom how it will overturn the fundamental realities of the world we see. Knowing the words of the prophet Isaiah remain true for us, Jesus offered parables and metaphors to penetrate our dull minds. And yet when we look carefully, we don't understand. And we listen, but we fail to understand the kind of revolution that's underway. Jesus could have compared the kingdom of heaven to the power of the Roman army, the strongest fighting force in the world, but he didn't. Jesus could have compared God's authority to Caesar, the authority of the ruler who could overthrow rulers and punish dissenters by a word, but Jesus didn't. Instead, Jesus compares the kingdom of heaven to a woman making bread. The reign of the all-powerful creator of the universe is as mundane as a chore and as normal as flowery hands. The kingdom of heaven will spread through the world like leaven through dough, imperceptible, yet changing everything. Jesus is telling the people, be ready, the kingdom of God is coming, and it will overthrow the material realities of the world. The hungry will be fed, the sick healed, mourners comforted, strangers welcomed, the world will produce abundantly, and humanity will strive together. But Jesus is also telling them that the kingdom will not come like the kingdoms of this world, with violence and dominion first sight, it will look insignificant. An outcast community rose up in the name of Jesus and spread like leavening through the empire because they spread a rumor that Roman crosses don't always work. And we're gathered here today because a group of outcasts survived the armies of Caesar and the power of Rome. We are the leavening of the kingdom of heaven in this batch of flour. We stand in a long line of transformation. And though our task may seem bigger than us, three measures of, is a lot of flour and we can mix through this dough with confidence. Because God has created, because Jesus has overcome death, and because the Holy Spirit is with us, the whole batch will be leavened. Where there's death, we proclaim life. Where there's brokenness, healing. Where there's injustice, we, we seek justice and mercy and peace. and We spread it everywhere. And that's why Paul wrote his letter. Because of what Jesus did, what Jesus taught, and the community that Jesus formed. And 2,000 years later, we still have the same mandate. The church is the only institute, institution that has as its mandate to be the intergenerational, multi-ethnic, multicultural uh, community led by women and men equally. That's our mandate. Because of what Jesus has done to prove that God's promises are true. So we too are to humble ourselves to be obedient to God even to the point of death, maybe even to the point of death of whiteness, because for Jesus, it was death on a cross. 
Paul knew this. It had nothing to do with circumcision. And that's why he said, this one scripture that comes in the midst of a community trying to follow laws without following the spirit of the creator's law. There is neither Jew nor Greek nor slave nor free. There is neither male nor female for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you indeed are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to the promise, a promise that says we are not what the world wants to label us to be. We are what the creator has created us to be. Iconic witnesses, divine facsimiles. That's our lasting mandate. Thank you.